From the Financial Times in London, I'm John Murray-Brown and this is FT News. It's a long while since eyewear was a commodity product provided on prescription by the health authorities in many countries. Today glasses are a luxury must-have item for the middle classes and as this week's merger between Italy's Luxottica and the French company Essilor demonstrates, it's a hugely lucrative sector. With me in the studio to discuss the announcement is Jonathan Guthrie, the head of Lex. And joining us down the line are two of the FT's European correspondents, Michael Stothard in Paris and Rachel Sanderson in Milan. Rachel, first of all, what has driven this merger? It's a merger that's been four years in the making, at least, although the two major figures involved, which is Leonardo del Vecchio, the founder of Italy's Luxottica, and Hubert Sagnier, who is the chief executive and chairman of Essilor, have known each other for 30 years. What's driven it in particular are two things. One, as you've mentioned, demographics, middle classes who consider glasses to either be a luxury product or also are very keen on being able to buy sunglasses or eyewear, both to limit the damage from the sun, from ultraviolet radiation, also blue light from computers. And then there is a separate or a secondary area, which is that Euromonitor says that of the world's 7.3 billion people, 63% are considered to be in need of vision correction. So for the groups, they saw one, Luxottica is an expert in brands, Essilor is an expert in lenses, and they brought them together to vertically integrate to be able to push into this, let's say, a consumer industry, which at the moment is considered to be barely touched by the eyewear industry. So what well-known brands does this cover, first of all? On Luxottica's side, what Luxottica has is they have their own brands, which are Ray-Ban, Oakley. They also have retail distributors, of which the best known is probably Sunglass Hut. And then Essilor is a major provider of lenses. Those aren't names that we know as well, but the lenses that you find often in your glasses are coming from Essilor. These are the world leaders in their two respected spheres that are coming together. Michael, if I can turn to you here, you wrote this week that the Essilor chairman sounds more like an evangelical preacher than a profit-driven chief executive. Explain a little. Well, when you meet him, he talks about his business not in terms of profits and synergies, although he does do that as well. But he's just fantastically excited by this idea that there are two and a half billion people in the world, in the emerging markets, who have uncorrected vision. And he was head of Essilor International and does a lot of advocacy work trying to reach these people. And for him, you get the impression that he really cares about this, not just as a chance for Essilor to sell another two and a half billion lenses, but this is a sort of exciting issue for him. They have this competition for an iPhone app that will diagnose myopia, and they're trying to roll this out so doctors in rural China can diagnose myopia and then order an Essilor lens you know, straight from the app. So are we wrong to pigeonhole eyewear as part of the luxury sector, do you think? Well, Essilor is quite technical. It's not luxury at all. Half of all of the lenses that are being worn and exist at the moment are made by Essilor. It's not a household name, but that's an extraordinary figure, 1.9 billion lenses around the world. But obviously, the combination of lenses and frames now is, you know, as far as they hope, the holy grail. Who are the main rivals to this merger who will be competing in that space? 
Well, the chief executive was very clear that actually the big luxury brands would be rivals, Caring, LVMH. He said he was sad every time that someone bought a scarf rather than a new pair of glasses, which really shows they're going for a bigger share of the consumer wallet. In the glasses space, the market is very fragmented, so they will be the biggest player by leagues and leagues and leagues. The other competition is potentially Google. They made very clear that they were targeting connected eyewear. And you know, this was two years after Google pulled its Google Glass experiment, but said that it was still researching something similar. This new European behemoth is going to try and do connected eyewear and see if it can bring that onto the global agenda. So as you say, the merger will create a very large player, roughly 15% of the eyewear sector. Jonathan, what do you think has driven this deal? Why do you think it makes sense? You've written in Lex this week fairly positively about it, I think. Well, I suspect it probably isn't social mission. And there was quite a lot of talk from Mr. Sanyer in the conference call about the very large number of people who needed their eyewear corrected. I suspect that quite a lot of those probably aren't going to run to Ray-Ban frames. But this is a deal that has been positively received by the market. If you look at what the synergies are expected to be at a cost level, which we rather miserably on Lex tend to focus on, it's around 300 million euros. The market movement in the shares implied a far greater value on a running level. And it's a pretty straightforward piece of industrial logic. You don't need 20 pages of slides to work out that putting together a frame maker and a spectacle lens maker is a sensible thing to do. They'll save some money. They have a lot of opportunities to expand. But you do have to caveat that with questions about Mr Del Vecchio's willingness to gradually relinquish his dual role with Mr Sanier. And also, I think there are some questions around antitrust approval too. And Rachel, in conclusion, it's been reported this is the biggest ever cross-border merger in the Eurozone, excluding the UK, I think. What does it tell you about the state of corporate Europe? And particularly given the protectionist trends that we're seeing from President-elect Donald Trump in the US? It's an interesting point, and there was much discussion both in Milan's financial circles and in Paris's financial circles about the deal, and also the timing of the deal, which came out, as you've noted, on a day when Donald Trump in the US had made some very tough comments about the EU. What I am hearing here, and we've also heard in Paris, as I said, is that this is a feeling that this sort of deal, creating a global champion out of two Eurozone corporates, is something that Eurozone corporates in Italy, in France, in Germany need to think about doing. This may well even be the start of a trend as, let's say, corporate Europe looks around the world, sees the changing global scenario and realizes that this is the moment when Europe needs to produce not national champions, but global champions. So in conclusion, this could be perhaps the first deal of many. Thank you very much, Rachel in Milan, Michael in Paris and Jonathan here with me in the studio in London. Thank you. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.